Thank you for joining us here today uh, for what is our second, what we call Becoming Sundays. And now, if it's your first time here with us, you might, you might find this a bit bizarre. What's a Becoming Sunday? Why am I here? What's going on? So I'd love to give you a little bit of context around today. Usually in the life of our church, what we do is every year we have a Vision Sunday where we stand up the front, we cast a vision, and we, we say where we're going, a new ministry we're starting, a church that we're planting. And God in His faithfulness and you and your obedience to God have always responded with exuberance and passion and joy to all of those things. And, and we've been really pumped about that. But what we've found is, uh, number one, uh, liturgically, there's not necessarily a need for one Vision Sunday every year, but the vision that God's put on our hearts sometimes leaks. And this year, we sensed a very important vision for who God was calling us to be. So instead of one Vision Sunday this year, we have four of them, and they're called Becoming Sundays. And the hope of these Sundays is to answer this question. Instead of what are we going to do as a church this year? What, is, what new initiative, what new exciting thing is New Life going to be a part of this year in 2021? We sensed a more important question placed on our heart by the Holy Spirit. The, the question was not what are you going to do, but who are you going to become? Who are you becoming? In reality, every single one of us make decisions every day that lead our soul to become something. I believe that every decision, in its magnitude or its minutia, every single decision leads us to become someone. Are we becoming more like Christ? And, and this is essential to our heart. If you're here for the first time today wondering what is the heartbeat of new life, our heartbeat is we want to see more people becoming more like Jesus. But this doesn't happen. This doesn't happen. This doesn't happen by accident. This doesn't happen by accident. It happens through intentional spiritual disciplines and us leaning into the Word of God. I was reflecting with someone in the courtyard last, last, uh, just before this service, and we were reflecting on COVID. And in COVID, what we saw happen is really some people choose that they didn't need the church anymore because it was now all online. And, and this question spawned in the local church of like, well, do we even really need to physically gather anymore because we could just do it online? And, and, and I think what's happened is that we have a weak understanding about what God does when we gather together. But secondly, the other thing we saw is people didn't open their Bibles because there was no need. Sunday didn't rock around. And there was no need to physically open the Word of God. And we realized that across Christianity in the West, there is a weak spiritual discipline where people, we should not be opening our Bibles once a week, but it's something God invites us into every day. And so this year, to answer the question of who we are becoming, we decided to read through the Bible in a year as a church. And when I said that, someone laughed and sneered at me and said, good luck getting 50 people to do that with you. We're a church of three and a half thousand and uh, with three locations, we've got three churches, part of the one family of new life. And it broke my heart to think that in this day and age, the greatest expectation we could have of a church like new life was 50 people. But what's been beautiful is when we printed these Becoming booklets, shout out to all of those of you who have uh, pushed through. Some of us have found the writing too small, some too large. And thank you for joining us either way. But people picked up these books. And to this day, anecdotally, we've received feedback and we believe out of, our, out of our family of churches, about 60 to 70% of our church is reading the Bible together. That is amazing. That is phenomenal. And what I want to show you today is a testimony of a lady named Charlotte Turner, 
who attends our New Life Coolangatta church plant. Not only will this emphasize the need for us to be planting churches, but also what happens when we as a family discern what God is doing and who God's calling us to become. Love you to watch the screen. I'm Charlotte Turner and I've been currently attending New Life for three years. I never really had discipline when it came to reading the Bible because I just didn't understand where to begin. But having the Becoming booklet in front of me when I have it set up, I can then cross off what I have read and then I can see what I'm about to journey into and it's just so encouraging to have that community support around me to encourage me to keep going. For me, my discipline is having a hot cup of tea, my bickies out in front, um, what I tend to do is read through the scripture, then I rewrite it in my own words. Guys, I fall behind. I have two young kids. I run my own business. So for me, I set aside Monday night. I give that two hours on catching up and God is so worth it 100% for me. I've never been able to talk about it with my husband because I felt like I just had no clue what was going on. So for me now, knowing and understanding what I have read and talking about it with him, just gives me so much courage to keep going. So I did have a confession to Michael and I did say that I was slipping the odd booklet aside for my clients to um, encourage them when it came to reading their Bible. So for me, I was never taught how to read the Bible. 30 years old, um, now that I, I am reading the booklet, I am so encouraged that I'm actually understanding the word to then be able to go out and talk about it with my clients freely. I have this client of mine who asked what we were learning at our church and I mentioned that we were going through this booklet and explained to her that no matter what age you are, you can pick it up now. So yeah, I encourage anyone who hasn't picked up this booklet to pick it up and just begin because for me, like God never gave up on me. So why would I even give up on him before I've even opened it? delve in and give a hundred percent because to see the fruits already changed in my life just is beautiful and I would want anyone to have the same experience that I'm currently experiencing. This this friends is our why. This is what we why we do what we do because because as Christians we're not Christians on Sundays. We're followers of Jesus every day. And maybe you've been to church before and the Bible's been used as an oppressive tool of religion. We believe that this is not an oppressive tool of religion, but the word of life. That it teaches us the character and story of God. So before I keep going, what I want to do, I just want to pray. Would you join with me as we pray? Lord, I thank you for Charlotte's story. God, it points not to Charlotte, not to me, not to us. It points to you, your faithfulness. That after thousands of years, your word is still living. Your word still speaks. So, Lord, as we just do something a little different today, Holy Spirit, make your presence known amongst us. Reveal the truth of Scripture to us. Wherever we are out on our faith journey, whether it's the first time in church today, it's our hundredth time, God, I pray, may we sense you in Jesus' name. Less of us, less of me, more of you right now. Amen. I remember a story of a naval commander who was sailing through the ocean on his ship. And he sensed a light in the distance. And he says, uh, we're about to hit this light. Like we're on collision course, so we need to tell this other boat to avert. Jumps on the radio, says, 
This is the naval commander. I need you to adjust your course 15 degrees. Back on the radio, he hears this reply. Uh, no, you adjust your course 15 degrees. Naval commander hops on. He's like, this is the US naval commander. You need to adjust your course 15 degrees. Silence, and then the voice came back. That's nice. You need to adjust your course 15 degrees. So the guy gets hot under the collar, realizes that he is sending his ship in towards certain doom in this moment. He says, this is the U.S. naval commander of the aircraft carrier USS Lincoln. We have 16 gunships ready to go. We are action ready. Adjust your course now. The voice came back in reply, we're a lighthouse. Your call. (laughs) Why do I tell you that story? Because I think for me, this so often is how we actually interact with God today. This is my direction. God, you need to change. Do you know who I am? And the eternal one, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, responds back throughout all eternity. Do you know who I am? I am the Alpha and the Omega. I am the beginning and the end. And what's happened in our culture today, it's quite scary. We want God to change to fit our understanding. When we don't recognize God is not something that we are meant to break ourselves against, but a lighthouse who longs to guide us the way home. And and maybe the Bible for you has been something that's been difficult to access, something that's been difficult to read. But here at New Life, we believe, as St. Augustine says, that these are the love letters from home to the people of God, telling us the character and story of God. And one in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 12 to 15, we read this. But as for you, Paul writes to Timothy, continue in what you have learned and have become convinced of, because you know those from whom you've learned it. And how from infancy you've known the Holy Scriptures. What did the Holy Scriptures do for Timothy? Which are able to make for you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All Scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. This is such a beautiful piece of Scripture that the epistle of 2 Timothy, Paul was writing to a young church planter saying, hey, remember the place the Holy Scripture has. It's not peripheral to what you're doing. It's central. And here at New Life, we affirm this. We believe that the Bible is the inspired Word of God, Spirit-breathed and man-ridden, through which we can understand the character of God, story of God, will of God, and purpose of humanity. Now, you might be here and going, but Michael, I have so many questions about the Bible. And to that, we would say, that's a great thing. In fact, I do not believe you can read the Bible without doubts and questions coming to the fore. That is a natural human reaction to Scripture. But instead of letting that undermine our faith, I think we need to create environments where we actually create moments where it strengthens it. Because here's what I believe. The weight of God, the person of God, and the, 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 the rock that is the Word of God can take the weight and scrutiny of your questions. We should not be afraid of our doubts or our questions when it comes to the Word of God. There is a reason this has stood the test of time. So we want to be at New Life, a place which doesn't quiet questions about Scripture, but encourages them, but we don't leave them where they are, that we faithfully pursue them to their natural end. 
So to do that today on this becoming Sunday, what we thought is that a lot of us are in the middle of the book of Numbers right now because we went through Exodus and everyone was like, I can't wait till Exodus finishes because it's going to get easier. And then you hit Leviticus and you're like, oh no, oh God, please help me through this. And you're like, that's okay, Leviticus will come to an end. And then you went to Numbers, which is like an accountant's dream and a narrative person's nightmare. And it's like, what's going on? And this stuff can be really difficult to read. So we want to create a moment where we processed it, the first four books of the Bible together, and also the first two uh, Gospels as well. So we're we're going to have a panel today, and we're going to allow for any question to be asked. And we're going to process this stuff together. We're not going to answer every question. But what we're trying to do here is not provide conclusive answers, but create an environment and a culture at New Life where we aren't afraid of the real questions about our real God. And so to do that, I'm going to invite Pastor John Morris to the platform. He's going to host the panel. I'm going to be joined by uh, Pastor Tim Hanna, who's the, uh, John will explain who he is, and also Dr. Natasha Yates as well. Would you welcome these guys as they come and join me up front today? Well, good morning again, everyone. I'm so excited for this time. We, uh, we did this already in the 8 a.m. service, and we just had a flood of great questions coming in. And just to, uh, again, highlight what Mike was saying, I love that we can be a church um, where it's a safe place to be able to ask and wrestle through a lot of the questions that we have about the Bible or about our faith. And when Mike first suggested this earlier uh, last week, I said, I'd love uh, if we did that. And maybe if I could interview, because I've got a few questions myself. But we've got um, just some great wisdom up on the stage. Uh, Everyone knows Mike, of course, but we also have Natasha Yates. She is one of our incredible elders and also a medical doctor. And then we have Tim Hanna. Tim used to be the, the former CEO of Passion for, I believe it was about 10 years, and prior to that, uh, been involved in uh, church ministry uh, with Gateway Baptist up in Brisbane. And so we've got just some great people up here on the stage, uh, which we're going to direct our questions to. So what we're going to do, there's a number on the screen behind me. Uh, if you have any question, of course, we're not going to get to all of them, but we'd love you to just, this is a one-time in church, you can pull out your phone uh, and text those different questions through as you've been in particular reading through the first four books in the Old Testament and the first two books in the New Testament. Any questions that you might have or, oh, I want more clarity on this, we'd love you to text that through. That's then going to come to my computer and I'll direct it to one of these uh, people on stage. To begin with, while you're getting your phones out and thinking through what those questions might be, I'd like to ask a question. All of you are quite busy with your careers and what you do. What is your regular rhythm right now when it comes to reading the scriptures? I'll start with you, Tash. Uh, Well, I guess the first thing to say is it's really hard. Um, I work, I also have four small children, and I'm not sitting up here as the prime example of how to do it perfectly. Um, So I think it's important just to say that the reason that I do it is because I see the importance and it's a discipline. It's a bit like exercise. I don't love exercise, but I realise that it's something that I have to do because the consequences of not doing it uh, are pretty bad. Um, so deciding to do it is probably the, the first step. And then at the moment, um, I have a little bit more time. My kids are a little bit bigger, but when they were really little, often for me, Bible study was listening to Colin Buchanan in the car 
dropping them off um, or, or driving them around. Now I've got it's a little great, bit more time. Great exegesis of the text from Colin Buchanan. <laughs> it's, it's good. He, he is awesome. And I've still got, you know, I can't hear Isaiah without hearing. We all like sheep have gone. So. Yeah, ba ba anyway. ba That's um, great. Yeah, so the, now my kids are a little bit bigger. We love the Bible um, project videos, which speak very much to us as well as to the kids. Um, and the, so just building that in every day, I will drive to work and listen to the Bible um, via an app um, in the car on the way to work. Um, the, the Bible project videos we try to watch with the kids once a week. Um, and then, but there's also, it's a little bit like in a marriage, you know, you've got your kind of touching base every day, but then there's also important times to go on dates and important times to go away for whole weekends at a time. And so also um, have tried to prioritise going really into depth at different times. Last year I spent the whole year in the book of Matthew um, and that was just um, really rich and deep. Wow. Thank you, Tash. And if you haven't got a Bible app on your phone, there's incredible ones out there. Even on our New Life app, you can read through the Bible every day on that. And it's just the audio Bible has transformed my year. I've got four small kids as well. And it's just great. Just in the car or wherever I am, I can just jump on that app and listen to the Word. Tim, what's your regular rhythm? Yeah, it's different now. We're a bit older and uh, no kids at home, but I can very, very much... Uh a test with you guys that uh, growing up it's difficult to get a, a routine game. How many going. kids do you have, Tim? We have nine kids. I'm not trying to get one up, but we have nine kids, which, How is, many grandkids which is you, you plus have, you Tim? plus you, and uh, that's the same as me. So, How many grandkids so, do you have? 25. 25. Yeah, so, so uh, yeah, that's another story. Good, but, um, yeah, look, it's uh, now I, I really feel, and I wish I'd have discovered this earlier, the, the piece of finding your own rhythm. Because um, you used to feel guilty that I wasn't reading it like somebody else was reading it. So for me, it's a bit seasonal. So there are seasons where it's day after day in terms of, um, you know, one scripture after another as we, you know, read through the Bible in a, in a period of time. But other times for me, I feel at peace um, actually having to plummet through a scripture, something that, that I read that, you know, piques my thought or brings more questions to me. I find I might read that scripture for a fortnight and try to find something deeper in that that God might be saying to me. So I, it's not like it's, it's just the thing I do every day at the same time every day. That doesn't work for me. It's not my the way I'm wired, but I'm able to each day plummet something that really matters to me and really want to see what God's saying. So it's, it's finding your own peace and rhythm in that. Great. Thank you, Tim. Mike, as a, as a, a teaching pastor as well, uh, you're often in the scriptures, but personally, how do you create that discipline in your life outside of teaching prep? Yeah, well, I mean, one thing we say to all our pastors is, like, make sure you're not just reading the Bible to preach a sermon. That's really easy to do, and but but I don't think that's what God calls us to do. I only have one little kid, so I'm not as much of a hero here as Tash and Tim. So uh, what I'm about to say, Tim's already informed me, will change as my family grows. Um, but I, I try to wake up earlier than Archer, so I, I try to get up about half an hour before he does. Um, and then in that, in that moment, I try to read the Bible, I spend some time in quietness and prayer. If I can't do it in the morning, I'll do it at nighttime. Um, but what I've found is that that moment of discipline for me doesn't mean that every morning I wake up and like, you know, open heaven and I'm seeing angels and the voice of God's real. But the, the consistent discipline for me has allowed for those moments to be more common as I just do, the, do it as part of my mundane everyday activity. Um, and so that's not always easy. And, and uh, you know, I expect as we have more children, Sarah's you know, pregnant again. She's 18 weeks. So that might change again, a new rhythm and a new season. Thanks for, for the clap. You can clap I'm, I'm excited about my wife being pregnant. <laughs> yeah. I'm doing a lot of the work. So um, I'm kidding. That was a joke. Uh, but yes, that's what I'd say. John? 
Great. Thank you, Mike. All right, let's dive into it. Please keep sending those questions through. I'm going to start, I think I'll throw the first one to you, Tim. Um, in the Old Testament, there are a lot of big stories. You've got creation, you've got Noah and the flood. Some people would say some of these stories are myths or they've been lost over time because they've been uh, told time and time again and they've just been, the, the actual evidence of what happens just been lost. How would you uh, answer what's factual, what should be read literal, or what maybe could be myth? Wow, thanks for that uh, simple question, John. Um, look, it's just an uh, easy one to kind of uh, ease us yeah, in. I should say in advance that God loves questions. He doesn't mind us asking questions. The Psalms show some great questions. So it's important to have those and sometimes not have them all answered at once. And we're no experts in that. But I would say this, that when you come through Genesis particularly, and you know you come through the creation story and all of that, and I, I balk a little bit at the word myth because myth sounds like it's false, whereas it might be a, an analogous story that still tells the truth, but it, it, that might be telling another fact, if you know what I mean. So, so I'd say... The Genesis account, for example, is more about um, who and why, not necessarily about how and when. So the who is God. God's done this stuff and he's created. He's the God of creation and redemption and fulfilment and all of that. And, um, and, and why he does it because he addresses us as human beings and broken people eventually who need redemption and healing. So it's the, the who and the why that really matters. But the how and the when is not as important. So one of the things that's helped me throughout, I guess, the uh, number of years I've been a believer is, is if the plain sense of Scripture means good sense, don't change the sense. So with what I know, uh, if you look at Genesis, could God create in six literal days? Of course he could. But I don't know enough about other things to have to, to you know to argue against that or or want to argue against that, but some people do, and they will say no. It, it that's that's a that's a story about how about about what God did, not how He did it. So if people know, I'm not going to fight about that. I'm not going to go to war about that. But I know it was who and why, and that's really important to me. So with all of the what we call myths, or you know, it just might be an analogous story telling something else. You've got to put who and why. What what is God? God saying to me in this whole process. Yeah, I love that. Always using the who and why as a lens through uh, trying to interpret some of the how and when. I, I love the way you you phrase that. Thank you. Uh, I'm going to go to you next, Tash. Um, you are a leader in our church as an elder. You're also a leader in the workplace as a medical doctor. When um, we read through the Old Testament, it can come across sometimes as oppressive to females. How do you wrestle through that yourself? Uh, whoever sent this question in, thank you. I love it. Um, and I was hoping someone would ask this, so I actually made a few notes just to keep me on task, otherwise I'll be here all morning. You'll be here all morning listening to me. <laughs> um, I think probably the first thing to acknowledge is that the church undeniably has been oppressive to females throughout history. Um, not all the church, um, and certainly um, things have improved over time, but I think um, we'd be lying to say that the church has treated women with dignity and respect um, I think what we've got to do is those not judge the Bible and not judge Christianity by the way that the church has behaved. Um, and we've got to actually look at what does the Bible say about women. And if you just start right back at Genesis, and hopefully those of us who've been reading through have read at least Genesis 1, 2 and 3, the very first thing we, we find out about women is that man and woman were created together. And there's no hierarchy there. So in chapter one, we're told that male and female 
God created them. And then we move into chapter 2, and this is the same story but told um, in a slightly different way. And we're told that Adam was created first, but then Eve was created to be his helper. Now, I think a lot of people might struggle with that. They say, oh, did Adam need somebody to come and do his laundry and his dishes? And, you know, when domestic blindness strikes and he can't find what he needs from the fridge, he needs Eve there to help him. Um, that is not what the word helper means. So the word helper is Ezer or Ezer, and that word is actually used to describe Eve, and it's also used elsewhere in the Bible several times, and every other time it's used, it's used to describe God, and it's used to describe God helping humanity, either individuals or groups of people. And so if God has used the word helper to describe Eve, he's also used it to describe himself. I don't think that's in any way demeaning or derogatory. Um, in fact, it could be said that woman was God's gift to man. Come on. I'm sure that's exactly what he meant. <laughs> man, that's a really good time to clap because that's political. Thank you. Us. <laughs> yes. So th- this is just the first two books of the Bible. I mean, as we pass through, if you do read um, about the women in the Old Testament, there were many amazing women who held leadership positions who, um, you know, there's Deborah, there's Miriam, there's um, Esther, there's Abigail, there's so many amazing women. But there are also, let's be honest, there are many women who were oppressed. There were, there were women who were um, not such great leaders. And we've got to remember that the Old Testament, when it's writing, is not always writing to tell us that this is the way life should be. It's writing to tell it the way that it is. It's a commentary. And so to understand and interpret that, we really do need to look at Christ and we need to look at what he actually said about women. Um, So if you'll just indulge me for another one minute. to I know this is a very long answer. Um, But when we come to the New Testament, Jesus actually treated women with the same dignity and respect and value and inclusiveness as he did men. Mary, the very first person to hear about his coming, um, what we call the Annunciation, was a young woman. She was alone. There was no man there to hear the story. Throughout his time here on earth, he had women there, and we're often told that women were the ones who funded and supported his ministry. At the crucifixion, we're told that his male disciples deserted him, and there was only one man left there, John, and all the rest um, of his disciples who were there were females. And then, as Mike so um, beautifully pointed out last week, at the resurrection, women were the first to the tomb. So Jesus and and, um, our God has chosen women to be the witnesses at all these really key pivotal events, the Annunciation, the, the walk of Christ on earth, the crucifixion and the resurrection. So God obviously values and cares about the witness of women and their involvement in his big story. The church has still got a long way to go on this, um, and I, I just really hope that anyone who's listening who's seen the, the treatment of women through the church and then thinks that they, they can disregard Christianity or God can look and actually say, well, what does the Bible say? Mm-hmm. Great answer. Thank you, Tash. Just a follow-up question. I might direct this one to Mike. Um, as, a, as a church, and even churches on the Gold Coast uh, and around our country, there are different views when it comes to women in leadership in the church. Mm. Can you talk to what New Life's view is on that when it comes to women in authority in the church? Yeah, I can. And I'll say this. Like, Mona, um, I think we've got to be really generous and loving in our response to this because a lot of my close mates are leaders of churches where women aren't allowed to lead or preach in, in the same way they are here. 
and and it's a really important conversation we have when we meet. But those are God believing, Christ centered. You know, they're, they're interpreting Scripture in a certain way, and, and I do see women flourishing in those churches. So don't want us to go if women can't lead these other churches, therefore are oppressive and, and bad. That's not where I'd go. But here at New Life, I would say that we don't want to build our understanding of why women should lead and preach and teach based on a cultural drift. And, and what can be difficult is if we don't actually have a biblical understanding of this, we can see culture around us and the feminist voice starting to come through saying, women need equality. And so we start going, women need equality because that's what culture is saying. And I just want to be clear, that's not why New Life lets women lead and preach. And, and I actually believe uh, we, later on this year, we'll do a series called Crucial Conversations. And one of those weeks, we're actually going to talk about what, what, is, what do we believe the Bible does say about the place of women and the church and leading and stuff. We're going to go to Scripture, not the culture. We're going to go to Scripture and unpack it. And, 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 and whilst this isn't a first principle, so what I would say, a really a, a closed-handed thing, it's like an open-handed issue in the church, um, it's an important one for us that we actually do believe that women can lead and women can preach, and they do here at New Life. We want to get better at this. We have one teaching female pastor at the moment. Her name's um, Anna Kustin. She's phenomenal with the Word of God. But we want more. We want more women uh, sharing the platform and leading in that way, but not because culture tells us to. That's so important, friends. But because we believe the Word of God actually creates space and position for women to lead. Now, for those of you who know, you'll be thinking about 1 Timothy chapter 2, Corinthians, and also some stuff in Ephesians. We're going to go into these texts later this year and wrestle with them and make sure that we're not just glancing over the Bible to line up with what the world around us is doing, but recognizing the Word of God is the authority of this church, and we're going to let that govern how we make these kind of decisions as well. That's why we believe women have an equality of leadership and teaching and preaching in our church, and, and, we, and I love that about New Life. I always have. Yeah, great. Thank you. Thanks. Mm. Uh, another question for you, Mike. Um, in, in the Old Testament in particular, there's a lot of rules. There's a lot of animal sacrifice. Mm. There's a lot of blood. What are so the laws blood. that are applicable to them? And are they what should still be applicable to us today? Yeah, because we were talking about this last service. You know, this, this understanding that like if we hold what the, uh, the Old Testament says, the Old Testament says, then we can't be eating lobster or crayfish and stuff anymore. And Tim, that really disappoints you. You're, you're a big fan of prawns. Um, and, and so what do we do when we read these texts? So there's a couple of things. And, and so I'll touch on two things. What's happening? In Le- uh, I'll talk about ceremonial and moral um, law. And then I'll talk about the book of Leviticus. So in ceremonial and moral law, what you have is you have a people who have come out of slavery for 430 years. They've been surrounded by pagan religions who all do animal sacrifices, who all like believe there's power in the blood of animals. Um, and, and there's an oppressive paganistic culture around them. These guys don't have any identity or any way their culture is structured. And so what you see in the book of Exodus, Leviticus, and Numbers, and Deuteronomy is God bringing structure and, and rule to the way they exist. Now, there are two different kinds of commands God seems to give. He gives ceremonial and ritual law, and then he gives moral law as well. Things like the Ten Commandments way over here. Things like the laws of purity and also the laws of animal sacrifice sit around ceremonial and ritual stuff. So if we go to the ceremonial ritual things, this is so important. Now, we need to make sure that we don't do what I'd call chronological snobbery here, where we're like, that's so bad they were killing. We wouldn't do that in our day and age. Well, of course you wouldn't because you didn't live back in the Middle East thousands and thousands of years ago. It's a different culture and a different time. But we mustn't look down upon it. We must seek to understand it. That these other cultures all did animal sacrifices in the hope of appeasing God, their gods, and they would fingers crossed, we hope this pleases God, and there was no way of knowing. 
But here in the Levitical text, what you see is these ceremonial laws. They would sacrifice these animals. And God says, this is the way back into right standing with me. You can trust I will fulfill my word. And he did. But more than that, when you read um, the, the book of Genesis and Leviticus, does anyone remember when I've talked about a chiasm? Does anyone remember that word? One person over here. Thanks, Marianne. That was such great preaching for me in that, in that regards. A chiasm is a, is a literary form where the text kind of comes into a point and leads out from a point. And Leviticus is a chiasm. It's a meta-chiasm where you start with ritual law, priests, and then you go to purity law. And then you have uh, Leviticus 16, 17. Then you got uh, purity law, priests, and then it finishes with ritual law again. It's like point, all the rituals are coming to a point. And the point is the Day of Atonement. And the Day of Atonement points to a day where the sins of Israel are forgiven every year. And the whole point of Leviticus is pointing to our need for the forgiveness of our sins, that we need a God who provides us a way back. It's actually pointing to our need for Jesus. And so when you read through the Gospels and you see Jesus breaking bread and getting us to drink of the cup of his blood, it has these Levitical overtones to it saying, God's always been about this stuff. But now for once and for all time, he's provided through Jesus. And so the moral law are the things which are close to the heart of God that are still close to the heart of God. Do not kill. Let's not be stealing each other's stuff. You know, that's, I'm not doing this in order at all. You have the first ones about God and then the last half are about how we interact to each other. And I think that's so important that when we read it, we recognize actually we can each eat crayfish. Now that's sorted out in Acts with Peter having a vision saying all things are clean. In fact, God makes all things clean um, when they come to him. So there's, there's a, it's hard to understand but there's a better narrative going on than just gross slaughter of animals in Leviticus. And we're not doing that at our church anytime soon. Well, at all. Actually, ever. For the rest, we won't ever do it, in case you're wondering. Well, that point alone about the shellfish was, I think, reason enough for us to come to church today. That was an important yeah, it's great. one. It's good yes. for Tim. Uh, I, I heard a few amens. Uh, Tim, next one uh, is for you. In uh, Again, in the Old Testament in particular, there's a lot of signs and wonders. It seems like God was very present with the people there. Um, however... When he wasn't, they were so quick to turn away and even melt their gold and create idols. How do you wrestle through that? Because when, for a lot of us, when we're reading that, we're like, how could you do that when he was right there all the time? And the moment he's not, you, you, you turn to false idols. Great question. And we probably need to look inside first to answer that question anywhere else. But I think... To read the first four books of the Old Testament and then the first couple of books of the New Testament at the same time is fascinating because you see this juxtaposition between an old covenant that we talked about right through the Old Testament and a new covenant which Jesus was ushering in um, and it comes to be at the moment he, he dies on a cross. So Good Friday is actually Great Friday because it means not just your sins are forgiven, but this new covenant comes Come into on. being where we can uh, we, we live with God in a new way. And the covenant that he made with the nation of Israel, he now makes with the world. God lo- so loves the world now. It's a, it's a global covenant. And so Jesus lives in this space where it hasn't come yet because he hasn't died yet um, when he's here on earth, but he's ushering it in. So it gets him into trouble with the religious leaders who love the old covenant. Mm. So that's where that, where that uh, juxtaposition comes from and it makes it very difficult. In terms of the, the signs and wonders and the presence of God, I think sometimes we confuse the presence of God. So God is, we're always in God's presence. And sometimes we talk about the presence of God as if, and sometimes the language we use, and I understand it because it makes a bit of sense and in, in, in it sort of highlights things. We, we even say things like God showed up as if God doesn't show up as if God is, is never there sometimes. 
or not there sometimes. And, and we are the ones who are in his presence. It's not that, you know, we make God to be in our presence. And, and sometimes it sounds like we create God in our image rather than God creates us in his image and we want him to be with us. So, so God still does what God does, but it doesn't mean we can presume that he'll just work the way we want him to work. Sometimes you see God surprise you with signs and wonders which are extraordinary and we ought never to take for granted, but they're fantastic and we ought to go, hallelujah, look what God has done. Sometimes he doesn't answer the prayers the way we would like or in the time we would like or he doesn't seem to show up for us, but he's still present. We're still in his presence. We cannot escape that. So, uh, we just, And we've got to look inside ourselves because that's how we operate. We still, in our human brokenness, think God should operate the way we want him to operate, and he, and he does. Sometimes he, he does miraculously. Sometimes we don't see it. A great answer. Thank you, Tim. Tash, next one for you. We've got, we've got a lot of questions coming through. Um, I, I can relate to this one after listening to Leviticus from uh, uh, the beginning uh, to the end. And in the Old Testament, God can sometimes come across as quite harsh, maybe even angry. And then you jump into the New Testament and, and Jesus is there. And you're like, I, I love Jesus, but I'm a little bit afraid of God. How do you work through that one? Wow, another really fantastic question. Um, I think when I first started to seriously start reading about the Bible was around the time that I was also studying my medical degree. And I remember thinking at the time, you know, has God actually got multiple personality disorder? Um, for the psychiatrists in the room, um, we now call it dissociative identity disorder, but it's not got hung up on terminology. I, I guess the, the point being that maybe God has got different aspects and he kind of flicks a switch and, you know, are we going to get angry God today or are we going to get kind and merciful God today? And so, again, just coming back, I guess one of the points of this morning is to re-emphasise the importance of actually seeing what the Bible says um, and going back to what does the Bible actually teach us about God because it is his revealed word about who he is. And in chapter 1, if you even just open Genesis chapter 1, the very first sentence says, in the beginning God created. So the first thing we find out about God is that he is creative, and that should hopefully reassure everyone here who is a creative person. Um, you are made in God's image, and you, that comes from God. And then all through chapter 1, um, the things that we discover through the, the way that he creates is he's a God of beautiful abundance, incredible intelligence, generous. Move into chapter 2 and his creation, his special creation, humanity, who rebels against him, um, chapter 2 and 3, instead of reacting with anger as he could have done, he comes in with kindness. He's very disappointed, but he comes in with kindness and mercy um, and actually promises to make a way forward. So all of these are things that are revealed if we actually just look and say, what can we understand about who God is by the way that he's interacted with his creation and, and with humanity? Then as we move through, through the rest of the Bible, as you say, like there's some parts where he can seem just um, really draconian. Um, but remember, a lot of what we read is actually a commentary on what was happening, as I've already said. It, it's not a kind of endorsement of what was happening. Uh, and the way that humans behaved many times was not the way God wanted them to behave. Um, it was because they were being human. Um, I think for me, coming to Exodus, where God actually describes himself, he gives a beautiful description that's actually reiterated a number of times. Um, he says that he is compassionate, gracious, slow to anger, 
abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands, um, Mm. forgiving wickedness, rebellion and sin. Yet, he does not let the guilty go unpunished. So if you look at all of the the things that are, are really good and true and beautiful and right... But yet he is just, and I think that's where we can start to, to struggle because, uh, and I'll give the example I gave this morning, just that I know my kids are probably watching and hopefully you'll forgive me, but I know my children would like me to be all of the first part, kind, loving, merciful, and just only to their siblings. Mm. You know, we all want God to, to show justice to the people who have hurt us or oppressed us. And I think that can be where we, we start to... Um, slip up in, in the way that we, we kind of dichotomize. If God is actually truly loving and merciful, he will also be just. He will not let sin go unpunished. And you talked about Burma earlier. And I was just thinking the people in Burma who are undergoing, or Myanmar, sorry, who are undergoing such oppression right now, they want a God who is just and who is going to step in and rescue them. Mm, yeah, great answer. I think a theme I'm seeing here is really looking at the nature and character of God. And when you look at just a portion, it's easy to maybe take that out of context. But when you look at the entirety of the, the Bible, you really see uh, God's nature and character coming through. Uh, we are beginning to run short on time. So I just want to do a little bit of a follow-up question when it comes to uh, the rules and regulations. And another thing, I'm going to direct this one to you, Mike. Um, in Leviticus, it speaks uh, a lot about sexuality. And there's a lot of different views and interpretations on that. And how would you encourage us to read through that and uh, the questions we should be asking? Yeah, it's a really good point. And I'll make this really quick because we're short on time. A couple of things I'd say about Leviticus's discussion on, on sexuality is, uh, you know, we're a church who has a conservative and historical approach to sexuality. Um, we're very clear about our stance on marriage and this kind of thing. But too often what I see Christians do is they go to the book of Leviticus to justify their sexual positions or, or, um, or their understanding of sexuality. And that's a really difficult place for your understanding to come from. Because ultimately what God's doing in the book of Leviticus is he's trying to protect the family unit in the middle of the, of the wilderness. So when he describes uh, things in, in like certain sexual preferences as abominations in Leviticus, it's really intended to be harsh for a people who needed to protect the family unit in the middle of the wilderness, that procreation would be, would be paramount in the time when they needed to be a strong and healthy nation. And the reason why I say that is not because God doesn't consistently have a sexual ethic throughout the whole Bible, but it's really dangerous for us to take Leviticus out and use these select verses and start to throw them around as as words of judgment or condemnation when actually they need to probably be read in their fuller context. And our sexual ethic really needs to be having a complete biblical narrative around it. Um, And and so you'd be looking at the words of Paul in in the epistles, but also the words of Jesus Christ when he talks about marriage, when he talks about sexuality, um, and and really identifying, hey, there's a bigger story than just this one verse. And what I I find is, um, we just read it last week, I think, particularly in Leviticus, and and I'll say it in regards to same-sex attracted um, people, the words of Leviticus can be quite heavy and harsh. And when we use that, in our society as a reason for our sexual ethic as Christians, I think the world hears the wrong thing. 
And I'm not sure that that's necessarily a good representation of the heart of God for the flourishing of humanity. Whilst we are conservative and orthodox and historical in understanding of marriage being between a man and a woman, using Leviticus as our justification for our morality around that is probably a graceless way to go about it. And I would say there's, there's better understandings and more redeem, redeeming understandings than just that. And that's set written to a people in the middle of the desert. There's also stuff about touching you know, uh, leather, about ears piercing about tattoos. Like if we go too hard and we don't have a consistent hermeneutic over Leviticus, then the world will see us contradict ourselves and we need to be careful with that. Um, so when you're reading the sexual ethic in, in Leviticus, you need to take the full counsel of the Bible into account and be really careful to start banning Leviticus as the reasons why you have the morality you have in so many ways too. Great. Thank you, Mike. Um, I've probably got about 40 different questions here. So we're going to find another setting or another forum in which we can continue to wrestle through these questions. But I want to say thank you so much for sending those in and that we are a church, that it is a safe place to answer and and to uh, bring forth any of those questions. So we are going to keep record of those and and we'll announce it at another time in which way we'll continue to walk through some of those questions and answers to that. But can you join me in thanking the panel today? I'm going to hand it back over to Mike. Friends, these guys have been fantastic today. And the hope of today was not to be conclusive in our answers, was not to say we have all the answers as well. But Tim and Tash rang me this week and like, we don't, we, we're going to struggle to know, to know everything. It's so true. The, the purpose of today was this, is that when we have questions of God and of the Bible, um, let us not stop with the question. Let's do the work. Let's recognize that the Bible can take the weight of our doubts. And either Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, and we should throw our doubts and questions at his feet, or he isn't, and therefore that's a great answer for us all. But because we do believe Jesus is the truth, because we do believe his word is alive and living and powerful and God-inspired and breathed, then we can trust it with the weight of our doubts. So as you read the Bible this year, what I want you to do is there's just three pieces of advice I want to encourage you with as we finish today. The first one is this, is that we need to be making sure that we're reading the Bible with devotional regularity. Devotional regularity. What do I mean by that? In Acts chapter 17, Paul comes preaching the words of Jesus to a certain town where these people known as the Berean Jews are. And the Jews at that time did not yet believe that Jesus was the Messiah or, or the risen King, and this was offensive to them. But these Berean Jews were different. In fact, in verse 11, it tells us, Now the Berean Jews were of more noble character than those in Thessalonica, for they received the message with great eagerness and examined the Scriptures every day to see if what Paul said was true. As a result, many of them believed. What we see is a whole bunch of people who are yet to believe in Christ, who didn't just take someone who had a microphone and a platform as a reason to agree. They went back and they did the work themselves daily. Friends, I want to encourage you, most of the sinful part of Christianity comes from people not doing the work themselves and just believing people with microphones and platforms. We need to be a people who are scripted, who are worded up with the Word of God that we know what the truth of the gospel is so we might go and know the depth of it, know the beauty of it, and hold each other to account for it. The reason why we read the the Bible devotionally with regularity is so that it's more than just a Sunday activity, that we are the people of God. We should be reading and knowing the Word of God. May we read it regularly. The second thing is that we read it in community. Read the Bible in community. In Acts chapter 8, we see an Ethiopian eunuch who is confused by the words in Isaiah. 
and a guy named Philip uh, supernaturally is transported there and, and, he, and he comes alongside the guy's chariot and he says, Philip ran up to the chariot and heard the man reading Isaiah the prophet and he says, do you understand what you're reading? Philip asked. And like many of us in the book of Leviticus, how can I? He said, unless someone explains it to me. So Philip, so we invited Philip to come up and sit with him. What happens here is we understand the importance of biblical discernment in community. Friends, if you're reading Leviticus by yourself and not talking to anyone about it, it's going to be really hard. Really hard. That's why at this church, why we have small groups. That's why we have a pastoral team who will sit down and have coffee with you, work through this stuff. Why? Because this is a document that is thousands of years old, yet still supernaturally alive and speaking today. It's not going to be easy, but it's going to be worth it. And I guarantee you that anyone who reads the Bible and doesn't come away with questions and doubts probably isn't reading it accurately. I think the Bible's filled with things that provoke questions, but God invites us into deeper relationship with these questions. And finally, we need to read the Bible knowing the power of the Holy Spirit. What I love is the story of Luke chapter 24, where two disciples are walking along and they're grieving the fact that Jesus was meant to be the Savior, but He's dead. And now they don't know where His body is. And Jesus turns, rocks up in the scene. They don't know it's Jesus, but he, he, he rebukes them. He says, how foolish you are and how slow to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Did not the Messiah have to suffer these things and enter His glory? And beginning with Moses and the prophets, Jesus explained to them what was said in all the Scriptures concerning Himself. Jesus can go back to, to the beginning, to Moses, to Leviticus, and say, this stuff was pointing to me. Numbers points to me. Deuteronomy points to me. And we're like, well, we don't have Jesus walking next to us today. Well, friends, we have the Holy Spirit's power within us and dwelling amongst us, which means that the very voice of God is available to us, that the most important thing you can do when reading the Word of God is invite the Spirit of God to speak through His Word to you, bring conviction and life. And here's what I know that you will find that the Word of God points to a person, a person who was not dead, a person who was very much alive, a person who was there at the beginning and will be there at the end, the Alpha and the Omega, the beginner and end of all things, our Redeemer, our Savior, our King. His name is Jesus and He is good. And when we get confused at the nature and character of God, Jesus says, look at me. Look at me. I didn't come to trump the Old Testament, but to fulfill it. I am God Himself. And we read the Word that we might know the Word, Jesus Christ. I wonder, do you know Him today? Would you stand with us? Gracious God, we just come before you now and we position our hearts in a place where, God, maybe we're here at church for the first time and, and, and some of today's provoked more questions, some of today's concerned us and, and, and we're, we're worried. And, but in amongst it all, I pray that the sense of a compassionate, loving, slow to anger God who forgives our wickedness, who stands in the gap for us. Lord, I pray we get the sense of your presence here today. Your word is not meant to be oppressive, but, but life-giving, but freeing, redeeming. And so, Father, if we have questions, I pray that they would call us deep into relationship with you. I pray that then this year we'd have people who have testimonies that the reading of the Scriptures have made them wise unto salvation. They've come to know you and know you fully. So lead us, Holy Spirit, as we become more like Jesus this year. In Jesus' name, amen. Friends, we're going to finish singing a song all about who am I? And the truth is we find out who we are by knowing who God calls us to be. We are sons and daughters of God, set free by the one who gave it all. Let's worship together today.